You're listening to Lost and Sound, a podcast exploring music, identity, and the future. My name's Paul Hanford. I've always believed that one of the best ways we come together is through music. And through this series, I'm looking at how music can and is bringing us together now and in the future. From my base in Berlin, we'll be meeting artists from a range of disciplines from all across the world who are drawing on music right now. Some already exploring new ways of doing this. Today on the show, Hannah Holland. Hey, how are you doing? I hope you're good. I am in Hassenheide Park in Neukölln, in West Berlin, in Germany, in Central Europe. Sorry that there was no show uh, last week. I just needed to... uh, just kind of switch off a little bit for a week i was kind of really needing it um i think we've all we're all dealing with this this situation in our own ways and one of the things that i think i've done is to just throw myself in to getting a lot of stuff sorted to just going yes yes this is the time to work this is the time to to really really embrace what i can do mostly in one room you know um and you just get to that point where you just go need a break (laughs) and so weirdly it kind of corresponded with a couple of days in berlin where we had like summer (laughs) just for two days it was 22 23 degrees and after the cold i really really noticed how amazing it was and i even went for a swim i got on the u-bahn I got off at a forest. I walked through the forest. There's a lake in the forest. I dived in the water. It was really cold. I lasted about 20 seconds and then ran out, uh, but felt great afterwards. And it's great to be back. Now, um, today on the show, you're going to hear an interview that was done on Monday, on Easter Sunday, with DJ, legendary DJ Hannah Holland. I actually know Hannah a little bit. I know her from the time that I was living in East London and she was living in East London. I think she had just got back from living in Berlin, actually, at the time. And uh, we were working on a show together. And now she's in Margate and I'm here. DJ, producer, label boss, club promoter, Hannah Holland has played a key role in London's alternative and queer club scene since the mid-noughties. Firstly, as a resident at the hugely influential night Trailer Trash. Then she set up her own party and label Batty Bass. She's played everywhere from Panorama Bar to Fabric. And stepping away from the dance floor, last year she scored the music for Channel 4's adult material. 
Not only that, she plays in the post-punk-influenced band Black Gold Buffalo. I'm really excited to hear her new LP, Tectonic, which is released in September. The lead single, Midnight Horizon, sparks with touches of Krautrock and maybe even a dash of Morricone. We caught up for a chat on Easter Monday. Hey, Hannah, how are you doing? Hi, yeah, I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm really good, thank you. Yeah, lovely to see you. It's been quite a few years, hasn't it? It really has. Um, Just trying to think of how long it must have been. The last time I remember seeing you was at that alien um, secret cinema. Oh, yeah, that was about nine years ago yeah yeah well well done to making it through the winter I always remember the winter in Berlin being really hardcore yeah I think we had about minus 10 for a week um which was super cold when were you living in Berlin um I was there 2009 slash 10 and the the winter that I was there it it sort of um snowed in end of December, January, and it and then it was just ice for till April. Yeah. So it was, it was a really cold winter. It was insane. It was like minus 20 at, at places. It was just one of those really, really freaky cold winters. I guess they always used to be like that, actually. Um, but it was just bizarre. It was just like, I just remember it just so bleak in January. And just, <laughs> yeah. I, like, I remember just like a moment sort of going to buy like a Hoover bag, listening to like David Bowie's Low, walking through Alexandra Platz, just being like, oh my God, this is so, this is too bleak. I know, I know. It's so funny, isn't it? Because I think like that was one of the first appeals to me of kind of discovering Berlin, like years before I moved here, was like those David Bowie albums and just this kind of idea of the bleakness of it in a kind of romantic way. And then yeah. when, you, when you get here and like that description you have of Alexander Platz in the middle of winter, you go, oh yeah, it is actually bleak <laughs> in that way as well. Definitely. But then, it, you know, and then the, 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 the spring comes and it turns into the most, you know, gorgeous, vibrant, fun, and best city in Europe. Yeah, it's like two cities, isn't it? And I think like the way that the trees grow everywhere in spring, Mm -hmm. it's sort of quite a lot of the time, you know, you feel like you're in a bit of a forest with just buildings in the background. Yeah, 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 and the canals, and yeah, I love it. And so you're you're in Margate. Yeah, I'm in Margate now. Yeah. Um, Sorry. I've been here for um, five years. Um, yeah, it was just, just yeah, just it was it was a real sort of London kind of situation when me and my partner left. We were just in a really horrific sort of like housing situation, as you find yourself in when you've got to sort of move places with the whole mm-hmm. rental stuff. And um, we had we yeah we'd met. Um, it was quite a weird story, but is it, shall I tell the story about why? Yeah, <laughs> if you like, if you like, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it was quite a cosmic story, but I um, basically was playing at a festival in Croatia and ended up in a being picked up the air, at the airport with Adrian Sherwood, the producer, and I'd never met him before, and we started chatting about living situations and stuff, um, and he was like told me about this place called Ramsgate and like how there's just like all these different musicians and stuff that were living there. And he, he just painted this like 
idyllic picture of it. And by the time we left the, the, the festival, we were like, we're moving to Ramsgate. Um, and then it, literally like a year later, we ended up driving, driving down just to see what it was like and just how beautiful. Like, I, I mean, I'm grew up, born and bred Londoner, so mm. um, never, ever in a million years thought I would move anywhere else in England. And um, yeah, it was just like a stunning place, really sort of quirky, kind of cool, individual, like... Yeah, just a really quirky kind of sort of culturally go stuff happening, which you, I wish I didn't expect. It reminded me kind of like old London from like the the sort of the sort of romantic days of what I remember of like East London and sort of the nineties and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we ended up moving, and then Margate, we we moved here, which is just down the road. Um, quite a few Londoners started moving here, and there's yeah much more of a kind of vibrant sort of music and art scene here so we ended up coming over here yeah yeah it's a really interesting mix of people and it's just getting um more and more busy as 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 especially since over the past year because obviously people have been sort of forced out of living situations and are sort of looking for an alternative basically so it's going to be really interesting once stuff opens up again to sort of see how many how busier the town has got and stuff yeah and and um i mean for you as someone that's so used to kind of touring and and so used to like events and being out as as such a big backbone to your life how 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 did you find lockdown initially how did you find this kind of forced change um i yeah i kind of i got into into it like i'm quite easily adaptable um I'm quite easily adaptable and I sort of like, I think I was really extreme with it as well because like, I was like, right, I can't be in my studio. I can't be anywhere outside of the house, you know, as we all were in the beginning Mm. and sort of like moved everything in the house and was, you know, got into the whole, like that whole first lockdown scenario where you're doing every single thing in one room. Um, And, but the second kind of big one in the UK, like, actually my studio is self-contained and like, you know, you don't really interact with other people if you don't need to. In, in so it's completely fine to like yeah, be yeah. in my studio unit. Um, but yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I have to say, I, like, I enjoyed the sort of slowing down process. It really was an amazing opportunity to kind of just like zone into a piece of work, um, which ultimately I did. And, and just kind of read a lot and think about things a lot and exercise and get into a routine, which I'd never really been able to do that sort of whole routine thing before, mm. um, which was mentally, it was actually really, it's been really, it's been really a blessing actually. I mean, do you think like coming out of it and going back to playing gigs and touring again, are there certain things that you think you will kind of incorporate now when you go back into that life that you wouldn't have done otherwise beforehand? Um, I don't know. I mean, the last couple of years for me, touring and, and the sort of touring extensively has slowed down a lot um and my focus has been more on production and working on film scores and different types of production work um so I think 
yeah, I think it's going to just be a lot more minimal for me mm. anyway. Um, but I also want to be able to, because I've made this album over the last year um, and it's coming out in the summer and I'd really like to be able to play that live, mm. um, which I've never done before. I've never played my own. I've played in, in the band that I play in Black Girl Buffalo. We obviously play live as a band, but I've never played my own music live before that I've produced so I'd love to be able to do that um that's that's definitely something I really want to explore yeah that's quite exciting really so would you like have like a bit of a lineup uh and live instruments and stuff because I'm listening to like Midnight Horizon it's sort of you know it's got a lot of like live text you know not live you know like live instrument texture on it yeah exactly it's got violins a violin and it's got my bass guitar in it. So I know I really want to explore stuff. To, um, yeah, I'd love to have like live, live strings. Um, and I really want to do stuff with live visuals as well. So maybe working with a visual artist. Um, yeah, I'm not really sure. And, and dancers as well. Mm. Um, sort of playing around with different ideas. So I'm not exactly 100% sure yet, but something will come up. Something will, Something's brewing. I know what you mean. It's like the, these ideas is sort of one step at a time, isn't it? And they kind of form as you're as you're doing them, really. Um, yeah, I mean, I love I love Midnight Horizon, and it's got me really excited about listening to the album as well. And one of the things listening to it, um, kind of, it struck me is like I could hear a little bit of kind of kraut rock influence going on, and a sort of a widescreen kind of cinema influence going on and for someone who I mean it's quite dancey as well but for someone who is um despite the eclectic different kinds of stuff you do is more associated with the dance floor did it feel like you were making a quite a conscious step away from making direct club music making this work yeah I guess so I mean I I've always made music like non-dance floor music as well. Like with, with Black Gold Buffalo, I think a, a lot of, I guess I, I learned so much with the band kind of um, when we produced that record, like I learned so much about sort of working with live instruments and crafting songs and things like that. Um, and also, yeah, with the last couple of years where I've been making score music, which is completely, which is totally away from the dance floor. Mm. So really working with like atmosphere and um, yeah, just working with atmosphere. And then also I'm like, like the music that I love listening to, you know, I, you say crap, but I, yeah, I love like Bauhaus and like, um, you know, stuff like Joy Division and like new wave kind of um is always a big influence. So yeah, it all kind of, I didn't really have like a, this is what I'm going to do. I kind of mm. started on a body of work and just like let it just happen and just, it just completely sort of genreless. And I wrote a lot of music and then all the, the sort of um, 12 or, no, I think the 14 tracks I ended up recording. Mm. Um, but I wrote quite a few more and, they all just, they're all quite different, but they all sort of fit together. Yeah, I love it. I love that there's that sort of, you sort of mentioned about post-rock and with the bass line on uh, Midnight Horizon as well, it's got that, like you managed to get that kind of twang. Yeah, like, yeah. Um, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> almost wanted to make, make me buy, buy like a big raincoat. <laughs> yes, 
I like that. Yeah, I, I, so that's really good. I mean, like, I kind of love the fact, like, I, I guess because when I was doing it, when I was making the album, I was listening, I was actually like, I was on the, there's this website called freesound.org. Mm. Um, and it's where, it's a, it's a website where like people just upload their um, field recordings and it's anything from like a bird, you know, classic, a bird, or, you know, there'll be like a, a tight, a tight, a tiny village kind of woman speaking or, you know, it's just like worldwide and you can, you can actually look on a map and it just has these, um, it's geotagged. So it's the whole world. You look at the whole world on a map and then you can just zone in to anywhere in the world and where people have uploaded their sounds. And I just got really obsessed with it over lockdown because it was just really sort of like, I was just like, it was really, you know, we were all stuck in this one place and I was just yeah. like being transported into these like, you know, in the middle of Russia and listening to whatever. Um, so yeah, I, I sort of, I used a lot of that, that, those kind of sounds. They're really sort of faint all over the record, but um, I was definitely using the music to sort of escape and, mm. um, you know, I wanted it to be very visual. However, whoever's listening to it to interpret it in whatever way they wanted, but I definitely was going for that sort of visual scenario. I really like that idea of like being maybe kind of like restricted to your movement, kind of using sound and resources to kind of escape and travel because yeah. of, and, and kind of put it into music. Yeah, yeah, that, that's exactly what I was, I was thinking, yeah. And like sort of, um, so I think I first became aware of you. I wasn't actually in London at that time. Um, I was in London right at the beginning of uh, Trailer Trash but I, I wasn't clubbing at that point. Um, I yeah. was far too much of an indie kid to kind of, kind of, be, you know, I hadn't really got used to beats by that at that yeah. point in my life. Um, yeah, totally. That kind of came a little bit before and a little bit later. Um, yeah. Like, uh, how did how did Trailer Trash come into your life? Because it's become such an kind of institution and, and a sort of iconic kind of touch points for so much of club culture in London and around the world now, really, and the ideals of it, really. Um, how, how did you kind of first become aware of it and, and get involved? Oh, that's really mad to think that as well. Um, I, I think it was, it was 2003, um, and it was when the whole electro clash vibe thing was happening mm. in London. It was a really exciting time. Um, and there was only a few clubs. There was um, there was uh, Body Rockers, which was City Rockers, the record label, who had like DJ Hell and Miss Kitten and Damien Lazarus. It was his night and uh, Errol Alkin and all that stuff. They they were they were DJing at that, and that was so exciting because it was so punk and it was so electronic and it just mishmashed all these. It was gay, which you know, it was like really mixed just such a mishmash of so many things it was so exciting um and yeah I think just we sort of just discovered trailer trash me and my flatmates from 
reading an advert. I think it was the first night we went there. We read an advert about it and we were like, oh, let's go there. It says it's this kind of music. And we went there and it was their first night and it was about 20 people there and it was bonkers and it was really funny. Um, and then my then we, we were also hanging out a lot in in East London at the Georgian Dragon and things like that mm-hmm. and partying around there. And I became friends with John Joe, um, who was DJing at the Georgian Dragon. And he was like, oh, I've just got this gig at Trailer Trash. Like, come with me. Like, you should play there. Because he'd heard what I played and stuff. And we played a bit back to back together. Um, and that was only like their second ever night, I think. And then, yeah, then they ended up asking me to be a resident. So I was, yeah, I sort of started playing um, a trailer trash and it, and it was it was run by um matt tucker and dan pope who then went on to start dolson superstore like mm-hmm. years later um but they started trailer trash and they yeah we just got on really well as friends we sort of you know yeah. in the whole sort of like hedonistic wild time of it all we we met as friends and they they really liked what i played and it fit with the ethos of the night and um I was having a hell of a lot of after it was de- basically when I was sort of like cutting what do you call it what's the word where you like cut your stripes or whatever oh, <laughs> you know? I know what you mean we sort of when you're sort of like you you yeah the your your cut your, your teeth <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> I was cutting my teeth as a sort of baby dj um playing for like 10 hours at uh, um after parties at our house we met you know we lived in this house where we managed to get away with having a hell of a lot of people in there and I would I would just DJ for hours and hours and hours and I end like every weekend so we kind of like just made so many friends in in the East End just by these crazy parties and all all that like wild time around there so so when I started playing at Trailer Trust everybody it was just like this real sort of great moment where everybody sort of like came together and it just it just started taking off really. It was really exciting. Yeah, that was a uh, on the rocks. Yeah, that was on the rocks, which um yeah, which used to be a strip club, like mm. um just before, I think, and then they sort of turned it into a music venue. And it was very <clears throat> it was pretty rough around the edges. Um, but it was so it was so cheap. The booze was so cheap, which was such a um such a which was a big part of it as well, because you could buy a pint for like two pounds or something like that, you know, and it was like, it was, it was voted at one point the worst toilets in London. <laughs> but it, it really works. Like it, it was just like this, it was very free in there. It was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. And, and at that time in, in Shoreditch and East London as well, uh, were you, uh, would you, were you, so you say you're a Londoner, were you always like in East London or was that some place that you kind of more gravitated towards um, in that era? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I grew up in South London. Mm. Um, so we would, we'd always be out in Brixton and um, mostly Soho um, mm. and the West End and places like, King's Cross to like Bagley's and things like that because yeah we just sort of discovered East End through George and Dragon and the Royal Oak and just the whole sort of like after party scene I guess mm. um in in like early early 2000s like 2001 to 
but yeah, it was very, it was so different to what it is now. I mean, it really, there really wasn't that many venues and it was very underground, very underground. Mm, yeah, I, I remember I, I lived briefly on Bethnal Green Road about 2001. Um, and then I kind of moved back to London about 2007. So there was this huge influx of things happening that I kind of missed out on, but I was yeah. kind of aware of. Um, and yeah, I remember that you sort of talking about the electro clash thing, and and it, it felt like this is there was a, there was such an energy that sort of um, yeah, it, it's sort of been it got about 2008 2009. It started to kind of become replaced by commerce and inflated rent and stuff but what about that era that you kind of think of really really fondly in terms of of, of East London and, and the kind of freedoms and stuff is there anything that kind of sticks out to you as, as something that just think wow that was that was definitely a, a unique time yeah I mean oh god it every single weekend you know there would be such a gang of people um mm. And, you know, like people that are still my friends, like 20 years later, people like Johnny Wu and John Sizzle, Josh Cafe, John Joe. I mean, it's, there's countless people and it would just be a mecca for hedonism, to be honest. Mm. And people that loved music and, you know, there was a whole, there was a big sort of fashion thing there as well with like um, Boombox um, and before that, Pony Step. So there was that whole scene. I mean, that's been there forever anyway with all the warehouses through the 90s and stuff. But yeah, like the, the kind of very sort of alternative gay scene, I guess, was sort of very much there. Um, and yeah, I mean, there was just some really mad nights, you know, that were just kind of like you'd never, you know, you never really hear of, I don't really hear of that kind of stuff happening in London much anymore. But it was yeah, just I just think the community and the the sort of yeah, the sort of like all night parties that would just go on and on and on for days and days. Um and the and, and also the fact that it's sort of you would go to like Secret Sundays, which was more sort of like straighter and like big sort of international DJs and like you could go there and then the next minute you'd be at like uh, Johnny Woo's Radio Egypt, which was in an old like church in off off uh, met where was it, it was like off Hackney Road somewhere mm. and they would be doing these like insane sort of yeah performance art drag nights that would like go from Sunday night midnight to like six in the morning on Monday morning yeah I just yeah I think I, I think that sort of just all the people that I met there and the kind of creativity of it was like really really amazing Mm. And when you when you started Batty Bass, was the idea of that to kind of bring a lot of the things that you'd found along the way into like your own night and your own label? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Um, I think musically at Trailer Trash, it was, you know, we played sort of straight up like electro techno house. Um, and but I, I've always come from a, you know, I loved I, I, you know, I was like, like more live music, and I was like really into like drum and bass when I was when I was a teenager and stuff. Um, just kind of like I wanted to do something that was a little bit more eclectic. As um, and I met Mama, the 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 my partner at, at Batty Bass when we started, and um, my 
my um, club partner, I say, <laughs> not my <laughs> partner partner. Um, but we, we met through that scene and she um, she was just like a real force of nature um, mm. that was just like, she was she was a lead singer of a band called Mama Shemine who were amazing and we just really hit it off and she we, I'd always see her when I was DJing we just like very much appreciated each other um and we decided to start a night and it would incorporate live music and lots of different styles of DJ so we had two live act we had Ken Tancarus who was Karen Kinky MC Kinky's band mm. And Mama Shamone play on our first batty bass. And then we had like dancehall DJs and I would I DJed all my eclectic stuff and we'd always end up with um jungle at the end. So it was a real and to me that really felt like London, you know? Mm. Like it's such a that's what I absolutely love about London and what inspires me musically is like the eclectic, you know, cross-cultural melting pot. And um we really wanted to put that into a club night. Um, and yeah and it sort of morphed from there into what it became mm. um, but yeah I mean it's definitely influenced by you know the sort of Riot Girl Peaches vibe and you know sort of all the all the different sort of club cultural things that early Acid House and um, you know for every you know we, we started going to Panorama Bar in the middle of Mm. starting that as well so we brought we just brought all of our influences into the night as much as we could so you sort of curated all of the things that you love and kind of give yeah. a night out to people that's that's full of these different things exactly and because we it, the thing that I think that made it really special was that you know we had the vocalists like we had like towards um when we when we sort of um we got into our groove with our sort of residency at the star of Bethnal Green. Um, we had like a series of resident DJs who were amazing. He'd always do like the, the warm up, like Miss Bailey and Deboa, who had such an incredible, they're just like absolute amazing selectors and, and very like really like super experienced and like just very knowledgeable. Um, and then when, when yeah that when the sort of main chunk of the night would start it would always we'd have like Simone mama would always sing um mm. and I'd always send her my biggest tracks that I thought I was going to play during the night every month and she'd make up music she'd make up her own lyrics to it so there was always this like insane energy on the mic um and then those songs became anthems mm. um and we had MC Chickaboo as well and MC's always hype up a crowd in like amazing ways um but yeah we sort of yeah it sort of morphed into this thing where we had like anthems and you know real sort of like points in the night where it would go from this kind of music into this kind of music and it would just kind of this frenzy would happen um and yeah it was what it was really wild it was great it sounds quite uh, uh like elements of being quite spontaneous as well yeah it was, yeah, it was very it was kind of anarchic, but sort of, yeah, it was this beautiful chaos, basically. <laughs> um, and, you know, because there's, there's that whole kind of idea that the dance floor can be a place where 
normal life stops existing when you're on the dance floor as well, you know, yeah. and I think that's one of the things I've always loved about Panorama Bar in Bergheim is that you go in there and you can't even see what the label of the beer is, you know, it's just like <laughs> real, real life is suspended and, and stuff. Has that always been something that's been quite important for you with, with clubbing and the dance floor experience? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, um, yeah, I mean, I've always, I, I think my, propulsion into to being a DJ really was just the experiences that I had myself I mean I started going clubbing when I was like 13 mm. um I was going to like I mean that's the first time I went to the East End for being a South Londoner you don't usually go into these other bits of London yeah. especially yeah. Young. um but we used to sneak off and go to Metalhead which was Goldie's Night um at the Blue Note and oh my god like i can still remember the feeling of being in there and just like how intense and wonderful and just like just it literally just takes you to another place mm. um, and i'd always wanted to share that you know experience and countless other times i've had that experience you like you said panorama bar and many 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 raves where you're just like in another world um yeah and i've always wanted to be able to share that kind of mm. that amazing like feeling with other people and that must have been incredible the the metalheads night as well uh really like um because i take it this was back in the day where where drum and bass was kind of like an emerging style as well um like it took me a couple of years to realize that that you had to start that, that you followed the bass line for dancing rather rather than the drums and i was kind of wondering why can't i why can't why my hands just being stupid there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the half time. Like that was always that was always really funny at school because like, you know, like we used to go out. So you 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 learn how to you know, it was about dance to the half beat, not the like all the beats. Yeah. Like, how'd you dance to that? How'd you dance to that? Yeah. yeah, I was like, oh yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the the coin drops really late. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But like luckily, you know, like when I was um super young you know like where I grew up in Clapham there was a lot of you know it's very different to the sort of yuppieville it is now and mm. there was a lot of um jungle dj uh jungle dj stations you know like it was there Brixton you know that area of South London was like mm. so much going on and um I was definitely listening to all of that you know at a really young age and just like um a lot of the people that I hung out with actually went on to be jungle DJs and MCs um mm. so yeah I was like that was kind of the first music that really like sort of 11 12 that really like blew me away <clears throat> and then obviously that it morphed into like drum and bass and mm. the whole Goldie thing was really exciting but yeah. I, it kind of got really sort of like pop it kind of got into like pop culture at that point as well um but yeah I mean it was going there as as a as a kid like it was just it was very it seemed very um serious it was serious fun serious fun. yeah and did you we, did you have many friends at the time that were also into it or were you kind of stepping out into your kind of own own realm through going going to to these nights and to the metalheads i i was really lucky with my i didn't really have many friends at, i wasn't really interested in people at school but i did have this one friend 
who was in the year above me who who is still one of my who's still my best friend and we used to stand at the bus stop and smoke like 500 cigarettes and he he was like looked like a complete goth and uh we became we, we bonded over music and loving like pj harvey and hole and all of that mm. kind of stuff and he was gay he was the first person he was the first gay openly gay person i met when he was 14 um and he yeah he was he was he was sort of like he read everything from the face and sky magazine and he was really like zoned into like the culture of the time and he'd be like yeah there's this not you he took me to those places and mm. um, and we just got obsessed you know we kind of entered that world together um as these children <laughs> basically <laughs> um but yeah we we really had a really amazing yeah it really was mind mind-blowing and um, so yeah I was lucky that I had him and then also like I said that my friends in my area like they were massive music heads as well and mm. um, so it was always a part of my friendship groups and yeah I, I guess most of my friendships have always and even my partners have always I've always it's always been a musical connection actually mm. I think it's very similar for me. I definitely had a before music and after music kind of life. Um, I had a period of growing up where music was kind of there, but it was a little bit more in the background, maybe. It was more like uh, I was buying seven-inch singles from time to time, and it would be what my parents would play, uh, which was sometimes good, sometimes just what sometimes parents can play. And and then I had like this kind of epiphany with... Uh, um, with some very similar to what you were describing about a couple of friends when I was about 15 um, and ping past like a Walkman headphones and it had the Pixies on. Um, yeah. And I didn't, you know, I, I don't know. It just, I'd heard music like this before, but I didn't get it. You know, yeah. it just sounded like noise. And then yeah. it was this experience of being sat with people I thought were really cool on a lunch break at, you know, doing my, doing my A-levels a or something like that. I was just like, Wow, I get it now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, through my whole teenage years, like the Pixies, like Kim Deal, Kim mm. Gordon, those women were like, I mean, there's so many amazing like role models in in from that era, and um, mm. but as as well as the kind of like jungle and the drum and bass and the dance music, like that's those were those were my sort of like absolute heroes. And mm. like Sonic Youth and and all that sort of stuff. Pixies, amazing. Yeah, <laughs> just yeah, no, definitely. And I, I feel like it in a way, um, dance floor culture has kind of allowed or has like given a kind of access for these sorts of different identities to kind of merge together. You know, in a kind of really interesting way. You know, um, this interesting punk iconoclastic people and the kind of freedom of the dance floor and electronic music really. Yeah, exactly. And I think for me as well, like the whole sort of rave culture um, was very, very multi, you know, black, white, gay, straight. Um, that was really important. And yeah, I was watching Top of the Pops um, the year 1990. There's like a load of um, archived mm. um programs that, that are on the iPlayer at the moment and you just watch you know like the year 1990 and it's just like incredible amount of music that was 
you know, being pumped to us all like every week mm. um, from like Naina Cherry to Basomatic to, uh, you know, just, just to like talking heads, you know, there's so many like incredible bands and, um, and just the culture was just very, yeah, I just, I love that mix. That was really, that was, that was, that was very um, important ident- as an identity, I think. Um, but yeah, and also just the freedom of it. I think that was for me, like really important getting into music is I always found, you know, the whole, that like, I never really got on at school and the whole sort of, you know, the, the system and the, the rigid rigidity, is that even a word? I don't know, but it didn't, it just, it just didn't work for me. But as soon as I found music and those dance floors, it was like, you know, like, you know, you can really express yourself. Yeah, same for me. I kind of felt that I was possibly missing something at school um, because I think the fact that you questioned if there's a word rigidity was really made me laugh because that's the sort of thing at school you'd be expected to know rather than it being just like possible question with maybe (laughs) no answer. It doesn't matter what the answer is, but it was very much like a yes, no kind of education. You know, you had to like do well at a test regardless of if could understand the test it was just about kind of keeping memory you know going and then suddenly being liberated by music um you know the interesting music reaching the part of London where I was growing up as well in terms of my ears well I I, I'm from Dorset but I went to school in Middlesex so it was like this is like the late 80s early 90s so for me it was really like you know, I mean, there was like one guy at school that liked the Stone Roses and he'd walk around at lunchtime, like he'd take his uniform off and he'd just, he'd just wear like a, a duvet around him and everyone kind of worshipped him. Uh, but I didn't get it, you know. And then very, very quickly over one summer, the whole rave culture and Manchester and Pixies swoop down and that's when I heard the music through the headphones and it suddenly it was like yeah you don't have to really do anything that you don't want to really in terms of how you see the world I guess for me that's how it hurt yeah (laughs) yeah yeah for sure and I was I was super lucky as well because both both my parents are artists I guess like Mm. my my dad's a photographer um and my mum's a writer and they are both like self-made people so like they always were you know they were always like yeah you don't really need to go to university it's just going to cost loads of money and like mm-hmm. you know like you could just do stuff you know as a either like an apprenticeship or you know they, they, they were they were sort of very sort of um into just kind of getting on with whatever it is that you're really passionate about um I mean, obviously, if I wanted to go off and be a doctor, like they wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to. They wouldn't have had that attitude. But <laughs> they, they was very creative, so they were very encouraging to, like, um, you know, just go out and start working, basically, which is definitely given me, yeah, definitely like being a, getting that encouragement. My dad's, my dad always used to say, just, just do it. Do you know what I mean? And like, mm. just my it, encouragement to just like and confidence to like start my own thing or just sort of like yeah just kind of go and do what it is you want to do kind of thing that's really awesome so do you think this is like a a confidence that you've always had in you like up to now well after now as well but I yeah I think I think um 
I think it's really important to, yeah, you have, I think, yeah, there's sort of people in your life that kind of give you a confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I've had a few people that have, I guess, been sort of mentors in a way um, that, yeah, that have given, given me confidence, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and also, I guess, yeah, there's like a kind of natural, yeah, because of how my parents were, I guess there was like a natural sort of like um, drive and ambition. Yeah, and uh, when you talk about that, there's this um, jumping in a way a little bit, but uh, in an interview I read with you, you were kind of talking about like back in the trailer trash days and maybe still now, but um, you're talking about Phonica Records. and. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and talking about like you have had your dealer there, and I I know what you mean, but it's such an interesting concept to to for someone to sort of say they have have like a record dealer. Can you just ex- explain a little bit about that, please? <laughs> uh, well, yeah, when I first started buying new like buying vinyl, um, the shops I used to go to were mainly in Soho um, and Camden, and. Mm. <clears throat> Yeah, I used to go every week. And actually, because I worked in Soho as well. So I would always be, like, I'd, yeah, I'd always be around record shops. So it was very easy to just sort of go and slip away and spend a chunk of time. Um, but yeah, so there was, there was a few favourite record shops. Um, Co-Contas I used to sell records, which is a, a little boutique um, clothes shop on Greek Street or Frith Street. And it's not a record shop anymore, but when it was, the guy, Richard, who used to work there, he he was selling a lot of the, the Electro Clash stuff, like the, the, the gigolos and the, and that was the only one I could really find that was selling that stuff. So I'd always been in, in there, like as soon as like Nag Nag Nag, which is the, the best Electro Clash night that happened mm. every Wednesday at the ghetto, after after every week I'd go in there and try and find the records that I'd heard. Um, but yeah, with Fonica, Fonica started soon after that. Um, and I met Heidi in there one day, the DJ Heidi, <clears throat> before she was kind of, before she became a DJ actually, she was sort of working in the record shop. Um, and it was really fortunate because the football was on. So there was like no one else in the record shop apart from me. And she was like, girl, you know, you're lucky because <laughs> I'm here for you. And we got chatting and she, you know, she we had quite similar tastes in music and she um, she just recommended loads of wicked shit. So every week I'd go and see Heidi because I know she, she was the only one that really, really got what my vibe mm. was. So she was really integral to my sort of, yeah, like kind of hunger and also record collection at the beginning of when I started like playing at Trailer Trash and all those kind of nights and stuff. Mm. I, lo- I love that idea that there's sort of, there's sort of someone being really in tune with, with what mm. you, you're into. A bit like in a way like having a really, really good hairdresser um, yeah. or someone that just knows your head and knows what you'd feel comfortable with. It's like these are the things that, you know, are the, these are your tools. <laughs> yeah yeah it was, it's really special and it's like it's kind of I kind of really miss that and when she I mean I love Fonica and I, I still buy records from there and stuff but because of geographically where I am and like just the culture now and blah 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 like 
it's not, you know, I'm not going there every week. Like I used to, sometimes I go in twice a week and they'd be like, oh, back again. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like, oh, I can't believe how much money I'm spending in here. But um, uh, yeah, when when Heidi left, there was, I did really feel it actually. Um, Mm. And I, I never really found my special dealer again she was definitely like the one for me and and also because you, you know, you've moved on to also opened up to you mentioned a little bit earlier on film scoring and tv scoring and last year recently adult material on channel four um went down really really well and and stuff and in in terms of going into this world um there must be so many different things that you have to consider during a film score or like a scoring for the screen rather rather than kind of just having the kind of total freedom to kind of compose music. Um, what what did you notice about that process? Yeah, I mean, um, I really love, I, just, I love the kind of restriction of sort of having a, a, a brief in a way. I mean, like for, for quite a few years, I've been doing music, like fashion music, doing various bits, doing bits of stuff for like mm. performance art and, and, and yeah, writing to a brief. So um, that that was good training for 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 the film school stuff. I, I think in a way that they they were also quite interested in having me on board because I you know I'm not you know I haven't done many. Um, so that also kind of allows it to to maybe have a different type of sound as well. Um, but I really enjoy, um, I mean, there was a lot of prep. So we, between me, the director and the writer and the editor, we, we all sort of like had a, a lot of references sort of b- bouncing around mm. um, in terms of what the sound would be. Um, and I really wanted to like draw on everything that I had learned. So I, I had... You know, I was I was work, you know, I was playing my bass. I was like I had um heavy kind of techno in there as well. Um I also brought in the guitarist from Black Girl Buffalo to play and the singer Kezia um to do more atmospheric stuff. Um I had yeah, like somebody I met from that band Chrome Hoof. Actually yeah. through Secret Cinema. So when I did Blade Runner at Secret Cinema, mm. um and hung out with Chrome Hoof for the week. Um, I became friends with Sarah, who was a violinist there. And we'd always kept in touch. So she came and did strings on this as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So yeah, I really wanted to just draw on lots of things. A a lot of it was like, even while they were shooting adult material, each week I would just make loads of demos and then send it to like the director and the editor and they would like start incorporating it into their like, assemblies before the major edit so we'd really organically work out what was going to work and what was working for what character and and just grew it from there so it was a it was a very long process and I absolutely loved it like I really loved being involved in quite like in such a sort of like yeah just in such a big way um just sort of seeing how the filmmaking process was happening and just kind of yeah, being able to be involved so early um, to develop my side of it. Um, yeah, and it was just a, it was just a massive learning curve as well. Mm. Um, it was it was it was definitely like a incredible job that you do where it really pushed pushed me out of my comfort zone. And, and taking being taken out of your comfort zones is that something that 
you know, I think what me personally, I'm always a little bit like, I don't want to leave my comfort zone. But then when I'm forced to, like when I'm, I'm prized out of my shell, um, that's when the growth happens, I find. 100%, 100%. And um, yeah, there's, I mean, yeah, so, so much. Even, you know, there, there's been big moments where I'd say um, the biggest recent moments was like adult material was just mm. like a huge, like now when I do stuff, I'm just like, it comes so much easier because I've done something just so intense and so big that like anything after it um, that I've done so far is just be, it was, I learned so much that it, it's all, you know, it's definitely, I, I, I can feel that I've grown. Mm. musically as an artist and that's also fed into the album that I wrote um mm. recently all of that growth has has gone into that um and then the biggest one before that I think was when I was asked to do the closing set of Panorama Bar which mm. was potentially going to be like 12 hours so to sort of to have that level of pressure on it for a DJ set was very daunting and um, but also like totally like you know so exciting and such an honor to do um but it really you know I spent a good three or four months from when I was told I was doing it to to just just like going through every single one of my records that I had you know like go, really going back through the archive of my career I guess and just kind of which was so helpful to every other DJ set that came along afterwards yeah. um, because I'd all you know I really really went back and just kind of like had to sort of like train for a marathon in a way yeah that's that's so did you actually end up was it actually 12 hours in the end of the set no it was nine hours and how did you um in terms of like energy how did you were there certain fit were there points where you felt that you or did you factor in beforehand how to deal with playing for that amount of time yeah I kind of trained for it as well like I was mm. doing um trying to do yoga and like not drink before I mean yeah it was pretty full-on because like I, I, I was doing a bunch of gigs before that that were yeah like I was in Miami and all this kind of stuff and I loads of other DJs and it was just like no I'm a bit you know teetotal and um mm. yeah it was just exercising and just trying to physically get myself prepared mentally for it as well um but yeah nothing really prepares you for that first time because it, you go because it's so it's such a huge peak time high energy sort of like situation mm. um so there were moments where I just felt utterly exhausted and then like literally 15 minutes later like I had like the energy of like fucking you know She-Ra <laughs> it was so crazy um so yeah I just yeah I, I guess it's stamina you know and you know obviously I've done long DJ sets before and you kind of you know how to sort of pace yourself and it was um it was sort of a bit of guesswork and a bit of you know drawing from my old experiences but nothing prepares you for how wild it really you go through so many emotions <laughs> uh, and like also particularly because it's panorama bar itself as well and it's such well, a yeah. it's such a sort of zone <laughs> yeah it's the zone and it's like that for me it's such an important club because it really was like literally the club that one of the main factors of moving to berlin mm. 
one of the main factors of moving to Berlin, just how special that club is and how many incredible nights as a part, you know, a, a raver that I'd had in there, mm. special nights, incredible music. Like it really was like probably like the thing that kept me going as a DJ, like wanting to play there and just kind of thinking, you know, when I lived there, I was just like, I, in fact, the other day I found an old hard drive from when I lived in Berlin and I'd like made a folder of like, which was called Panorama Bar of tracks yeah. I wanted to play in Panorama Bar, but like I didn't play till 10 years later. So I was like already planning my set like 10 years previous to actually playing there. Wow. So, so it's kind of like a, a musical vision board in a way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was obsessed with it. Um, so yeah, I definitely it definitely was just like a real sort of like huge huge moment. Yeah. Oh, Han, I think yeah, Hannah that I think got about an hour and <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love I love that. Thank you. That's um Thanks for having me. Have, have a lovely day the rest of today. Thank you. Cheers Paul. Lovely to chat. Lovely to chat too. Bye-bye. Bye. So there we go. I, I loved chatting with Hannah. That was Hannah Holland chatting with me at Lost and Sound on Monday, the 5th of April, Easter Monday. The single Midnight Horizon is out now. The album Tectonic is out on September the 17th. Um, well worth going and checking out the Black Gold Buffalo album as well, which came out in 2018. And there's lots of her mixes. If you haven't listened to them already, if, you, if you're new to her stuff on SoundCloud, I'm sure many of you are already aware of that. But in case you're new and you're going, hey, um, yes, I am in Hassenheide Park. And... I have some exciting news, which I'm not going to share with you quite yet, um, but I'm going to be talking about in the next, probably in the next episode, um, a new production, a Lost and Sound affiliated production, uh, which I'm going to be breaking some news about. I hope you're well. I hope you're good. hope you're keeping safe and trim and having fun and eating lots of nice things and drinking lots of water. Um, I'll speak to you soon. Take care. and Sound is written and produced by me, Paul Hanford. Title music by ESO. And a big thanks to Kieran Yates in the UK for mastering the levels. This episode is being hosted by Bear Radio.
And you can check out other English language podcasts from Berlin by going on bearradio.org. And if you enjoyed listening, please hit subscribe and leave a comment. It really does help. And if you wish, you can help the production costs of making Lost and Sound by buying me a digital coffee at coffee.com. There's a link in the socials. Take care and speak to you soon.